0: Hi, and welcome to your Owen podcast. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, coordinator for the Ontario Animal Health Network, and I'm joined today by Dr. Maureen Anderson, internist and also a lead veterinarian at the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. Welcome, Maureen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Um, So we're going to jump right into some questions about rabies. We've done a few of these before, but we thought it was time for an update because things have changed and we've got some, we had more cases. Um, So what's the current status of rabies in Ontario?
1: So since December of 2015, which is uh, when we started seeing the raccoon rabies cases down in the Hamilton area, we've had a grand total of 397 cases of raccoon strain rabies and 16 cases of fox strain rabies in the same time frame. So the two different rabies virus variants are separate in terms of their epidemiology. The raccoon rabies is down in the Hamilton area and the surrounding public health units down there off the tip of the lake and then the fox rabies cases are up in Perth, Huron and most recently uh, the north western side of uh, Waterloo County as well. Uh, but the good news is is that the terrestrial rabies cases uh, in terms of the raccoon rabies are actually trending down so in 2016 which was the first full year of the outbreak we had 255 cases primarily in raccoons and skunks. Uh, And then last year in 2017, we had only 119 and uh, we were seeing comparable numbers in terms of what was being tested for surveillance. Uh, So that's not just a a decrease in the number of animals being tested, there was actually a true decrease in the number of cases. Unfortunately, with fox rabies, we actually saw the cases go up from three cases in 2016 to 10 cases in 2017. And so far this year, we've had an additional two cases of fox strain, again, up in Waterloo and Huron counties. And of course you have to remember that the risk of bat rabies remains pretty much constant and pretty uniform across the province. So about uh, three, two to 3% of the bats that we test uh, come back positive. So it's always a risk when it comes to bats, unfortunately, that uh, they may be carrying rabies as well. And that applies anywhere in the province.
0: Right. So even even though the cases case numbers are dropping, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean lay off the rabies vaccination.
1: Absolutely. And you also have to remember there's always the risk of translocation events as well. So even if you're in an area where currently there isn't any terrestrial rabies, there's always the risk that an infected raccoon or a skunk gets on somebody's trailer or a transport truck or an RV or something like that, and especially with summer vacation coming up, and could be moved from somewhere down in the States to somewhere in Ontario, could be moved from a high-risk area in the Hamilton area to somewhere else in Ontario. So we always need to remain vigilant for it, but... The current maps do help inform our risk assessments, certainly.
0: And although that sounds like an unlikely scenario, that is how we ended up with rabies in Ontario.
1: It right? is. Based on the genetic analysis of the raccoon rabies var- variant that we saw in, or that we're seeing in Hamilton, uh, it was most closely related to variant uh, virus variants rather circulating in southeastern New York so we figure that's about 500 kilometers away so raccoons don't have a range anywhere near that so it's highly likely that it was a raccoon that got onto a transport of some kind and accidentally got dropped off in the Hamilton area and that's how the whole thing started.
0: Gotcha. Um, Now any reason uh, that's known why we're seeing kind of a, a mixed bag of rabies strains in different animals or?
1: Well the The raccoon variant, uh, like I said, was essentially imported from the states by accident. Uh, So that was a a new outbreak that started at the end of 2015. The fox variant cases, we've had fox variant rabies in Ontario since the 1950s, and it actually migrated down from the Arctic. So it was originally Arctic fox uh, variant rabies. And uh, for a number of decades, we had rampant fox variant rabies across Ontario, and it's mostly uh, thanks to the MNRF, which is the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry and their oral rabies baiting program for wildlife that began in 1989, uh, that they were able to knock that back. And there were actually even a couple of years where we had no terrestrial rabies cases detected in Ontario, which was amazing. But unfortunately, It would appear that we hadn't quite stamped it out completely in southern Ontario. So we know it's still circulating in northern Ontario, always has, and quite possibly always will. Um, But we were hoping to get rid of that last vestige of Fox variant rabies uh, in southern Ontario. And unfortunately, like I said, at the end of 2015, we found another case. And now we've uh, found another uh, 15 cases since then, so for a total of 16 uh, so that one wasn't quite stamped out, but we're going to continue to work on that.
0: Mm-hmm. And skunk, skunk, creepy, skunk variant.
1: Maybe? So we don't have a skunk variant uh, circulating in Ontario, but skunks seem to be very susceptible to both fox variant and to raccoon variants. So the raccoon variant outbreak uh, is about two-thirds raccoons and about one-third skunks. And in terms of the fox variant, uh, we've been seeing it the Cases in the last few years have actually been uh, bovids and skunks and only one fox. So the skunks do seem to be quite susceptible to both variants, but they are uh, primarily fox variant and raccoon variant. But, of course, any mammal is susceptible to Mm -hmm. any variant of rabies, be it raccoon, fox, skunk, uh, bat, or what have you. So we always have to be on the lookout. Poor skunks. Poor skunks, Yep, They get the short (laughs) end of that deal.
0: All right. So tell me... um,
1: give me a quick rundown of what's
0: involved in doing a rabies risk assessment uh, for a domestic animal.
1: Sure. So this is sort of the quick and dirty of what veterinarians need to know if uh, they have an owner that comes to them and is concerned that their animal may have been exposed to rabies. So there's four basic components. And again, there's always additional factors that are you know unique to each case that you have to take into consideration. But the four big ones that you want to think about are number one, the exposure category. Is there a significant risk that that animal was exposed to saliva from whatever offending animal uh, we think may have been carrying rabies? So that's contact with saliva in broken skin or with any of the mucous membranes. So usually the eyes, nose or mouth. So that's number one. There has to be exposure to the saliva specifically and just contact on the, with the outside of the body or contact with blood even is not considered a risk for rabies exposure. It has to be exposure to the saliva of the animal. So bites, of course, are always the highest risk because that puts saliva right into the tissues mm-hmm. of your domestic animal. Number two is we look at what species that offending animal was, right? So was it actually a species that is considered a reservoir species or high risk for rabies? So Bats, like I said, pretty uniform across the province, 2 to 3% of them are going to be carrying rabies, so that is considered a high-risk species. Raccoons, skunks, and foxes are our other reservoir species, so they are definitely higher on the risk category. I would be, of course, more worried about a raccoon down in the Hamilton area than I would a raccoon up in, say, the Perth Perth County, uh, just because of the different uh, strains that are circulating in those two areas. But those guys are definitely the higher risk species. We do also have a number of species that are considered low risk. And the one we get called about a lot is coyotes. Mm. So coyotes getting into fights with dogs, coyotes that try to make off with little dogs, unfortunately, is a, a relatively frequent occurrence. For whatever reason, even when we had really rampant fox variant rabies in Ontario, coyotes were very, very rarely seen. With rabies, So they are mammals, they are susceptible, but for whatever reason, be it the way the coyotes interact with the reservoir species or, or genetic uh, variability and so on and so forth, they do not seem to be terribly susceptible to the variants that we have um, circulating in Ontario and we, we do not see a lot of rabies in coyotes. So a coyote attack is considered low risk for rabies unless the coyote was truly doing something that we would consider abnormal. If it was acting like a normal coyote, it is considered fairly low risk.
0: Also probably hard to track them afterwards and get them. It can be, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are occasionally dogs that um, get the better of the coyote, and then there is sometimes a coyote available for testing. But yeah, for the most part, the coyotes um, manage to escape scenarios like that. Okay. Um, Other low-risk species that we sometimes hear about, possums, groundhogs, both can be very aggressive, both considered very low risk, unless, like I said, they're actually doing something abnormal. Okay. And then the next thing to think about, so we've got exposure category, we've got species of the offending animal, and then we've got the local epidemiology. And that's when you want to pull out the map, right? Mm-hmm. The so really the, map map. That, yep. the map that's showing where the cases are occurring in Ontario. So remembering that, again, that risk is pretty uniform across the province. But if you're down in the Hamilton area and the surround, it's going to be much higher risk than if you're, Say out in the Peterborough area, where we don't have we don't have risk of raccoons coming across the border, um, we don't have any known circulating terrestrial rabies. Again, there's always the possibility of a translocation event, but that would be considered a lower risk area. And again, going up to uh, say Perth County, I'm much less worried about a raccoon up there than I am about a fox or a skunk because of the variant that is circulating there. So, and Border areas, again, with New York State, we know there is a lot of raccoon rabies circulating in New York State, despite best efforts to bait the border areas. So we have to be a little bit more leery of it in areas like, for example, Prescott, where that's um, the area where we had the last outbreak of raccoon rabies in Ontario back in 1999 to 2005, because some raccoons got across the border and, and started infecting the wildlife there. Gotcha. And then the last one is actually the behavior of the offending animal itself. So we do consider whether or not that animal was doing something abnormal at the time. If it was acting abnormal, that definitely does increase the risk that it was actually carrying rabies. It doesn't necessarily mean that if it was acting abnormal, it must have rabies because there are other diseases, there's distemper and any number of other things that could cause an animal to act in an unusual way that we may or may not be aware of. But if it's abnormal, that definitely increases the risk. So we look at things like, uh, was it provoked? So, uh, for example, if you have a raccoon that's out in the backyard and is going through the garbage can and a dog gets let out into the yard, spots the raccoon and goes after it and they get into a fight and then the raccoon runs away, that's perfectly normal behavior for a raccoon. If, on the other hand, there's a raccoon that actually forces its way into, say, a dog's kennel or something like that with a barking dog in it, that would be very unusual behavior for a raccoon because they shouldn't be going near Mm -hmm. a dog that is acting aggressive and barking at it and so on and so forth. So you want to look at the behavior of the animal as well. Particularly in the spring, we have to remember that even though these are nocturnal animals, sometimes they will come out at unusual times of day if they're looking for mates, if they're looking for food. It's been a long, hard winter for some of them. They'll come out during the day when it's a little bit warm, warmer. They'll come out if they're disturbed. So if a dog has you know, chased a raccoon or a skunk out from its den or its hiding spot, you will sometimes see them out during the day. It is, it is unusual in that sense, but that in and of itself does not necessarily mean the animal is neurological. So we have to take all those things into account. So if you go through this risk assessment when you're presented with something and based on all of these factors and any other extenuating circumstances, as a veterinarian, you're able to say, no, this is low risk for rabies transmission. Remember, you don't need to call low risk scenarios into OMAFRA, right? So if it's low risk and you are comfortable with it, it doesn't need to be called in. But if there's ever a scenario where you're a little bit unsure, or maybe there's some circumstances that, that make it a little bit unusual and you just wanna check with somebody, or if you actually do have a scenario that you're fairly convinced is high risk and either uh, the offending animal needs to be tested or the at-risk animal, the domestic animal may need to be confined because it could potentially actually go on to develop rabies, Mm -hmm. then by all means, yes, we do want veterinarians to contact us through our Agricultural Information Contact Center. And that's what OMAFRA is here for and the OMAFRA vets are here to help out the private vets who are on the front line with making sure we get those risk assessments right and keep everybody safe.
0: So we will get, we'll make sure that that number is posted, and then there's a great website, correct? To we do through, have a great website, to run <laughs> and so you can reference all of this. And yes. it was a lovely decision tree, from what I recall.
1: Yes. So the OMAFRA website has a probably all of the information I'm talking about today on it. Uh, We also do have a very handy one-page risk assessment flow chart that's really easy to have around in the clinic and helps you sort of Mm -hmm. make quick decisions on, you know, whether something just needs to be revaccinated or whether, you know, testing might be required or if confinement might be required. Uh, so that can be downloaded uh, right off the website as a PDF and printed out. And we'll make
0: sure the link is right there with the podcast. Perfect. And then our map is always, um, the map that's furnished by OMNRF, mm-hmm. um, is always posted weekly on owen.ca. Perfect. And it's put out on social media too. Okay. Great. So if a veterinarian uh, has a concern, what should they do if it's out of hours?
1: So out of hours, that's a great question you have to remember that rabies exposure is typically considered a medical urgency but not an emergency so it's something you don't want to you know wait a week or something to to look at and and figure out what to do but it doesn't need to be handled at two o'clock in the morning on a saturday night or 10 p.m on a wednesday night it can wait till the next morning for the most part exactly so Mm -hmm. omafra will handle most of these calls next business day Uh, but there are a few things to remember to do especially on weekends because it might be a day or two before uh, we're able to complete the risk assessment so the three main things are if there is a sample available that might need to be tested be it a bat a skunk a raccoon or if it's a neurologic animal you know sometimes with livestock and that type of thing if there's a sample that might need to be tested we want to make sure that that is being preserved so it needs to be put someplace cold Samples can be put in the freezer, that's fine, but you want to try to avoid freeze-thaw too many times because that's very damaging to the tissue. But if you just freeze it once and then we decide it needs to be shipped, it can be shipped frozen, that's not a problem. So number one is preserve any samples that are available. Number two, if there is a domestic animal that is potentially exposed, which there probably is or you're not wondering about this... (laughs) Uh, That animal can absolutely be vaccinated, and you don't need to wait. It and actually, the sooner the better, because it's essentially the equivalent of post-exposure prophylaxis for that animal. The idea is to get its antibody titer up as high and as quickly as possible so that if there is any virus in the system, it essentially gets intercepted before it gets to the central nervous system. So the only exception to that, the only time you can't vaccinate the animal is if it has also bitten a person in the last 10 days. And in that case, you should probably hold off until we can have a discussion with public health about um, what to do in that case and which one is, is the greater risk and whether or not that animal should be revaccinated okay. within that period or not.
0: So and if there's if there's um, exposure to a person, like a bite to a person, yes. then
1: you need to... So that's if the domestic animal that we're worried about has bitten a person, right? Yeah. That animal needs to wait to get its rabies vaccine, yeah. usually for 10 days. If the scenario has a person who has been bitten by the offending animal. So say a dog gets into a fight with a raccoon and the owner tries to break it up. And in the process, the owner also gets exposed to the raccoon. You want to make sure that you refer that person to the public health unit right away. And every public health unit has a 24-hour contact number. They can be reached anytime, including weekends. And if they do consider it to be a very high-risk scenario for the person, they can sometimes get uh, post-exposure prophylaxis for the person initiated right away on the weekend, and they don't need to wait until the okay. next morning. Well, they wouldn't need to necessarily wait until Monday morning. They would certainly wait until the next morning. They're not right. going to do it in the middle of the night, probably right? not yeah. So okay. And then if the,
0: but if the offending animal bites the domestic animal yes. and the domestic animal bites the person, that's when you have to wait
1: potentially.
0: Wait on vaccinating, Wait on bites and. do you call public health
1: right away? Yes, because okay. animal bites need to be reported to public health, whether okay. it's domestic animal or whether it's wildlife, domestic, or sorry, any bites to a person do need to be reported to the public health okay, unit. Great.
0: All right, excellent. Um, so that's what veterinarians should do. If you're a pet owner and you happen to be listening to this, uh, what should you do if you have a concern?
1: Very simple. If you are a pet owner and you have a concern, you want to call your veterinarian first. They are the front line. A lot of the time... Uh, as we've been saying, they can do the basic risk assessment and they can rule it out in a lot of cases. Or if it is a risk, they can make sure that your animal gets its vaccine as soon as possible. And then the vet will work with OMAFRA in order to get anything tested or um, to provide recommendations for confinement or whatever is needed. So pet owners, very simple, night or day, call your veterinarian. Okay, great. Is there anything else you want to remind people? Yes. So the one thing that we still run into periodically that does get a little bit confusing uh, is this 10-day this period, which we we're just talking about not vaccinating an animal within that 10-day period after a bite. And you have to remember that that 10-day isolation period or observation period is for... A dog or a cat that has bitten a person, not for a dog or cat that has been bitten by something else. So the incubation period for rabies in a domestic animal can be up to six months, depending on what its vaccination status was and that type of thing. So sending an animal home and saying, just keep it isolated for 10 days. And if it's still okay, everything will be fine. That can actually be very dangerous because that animal could theoretically develop rabies anytime in the next six months we want to be very careful about that the 10-day period is only for an animal that has bitten a person and it's for the protection of the person who is bitten because we know if that animal is still normal at the end of 10 days that the person is safe but in terms of an animal bitten by a, a rabies reservoir species or another rabid animal um, it's the risk period is much longer than that so right. we have to be very careful
0: and for farm animals it can be quite a bit longer like it can be that six months
1: so for actually for livestock the confinement periods are 40 days to 60 days depending on um, what type of animal it was that uh, was actually found to be rabid so whether it was an actual member of the herd or whether it was an animal from outside the herd that may have exposed it changes the the confinement period for livestock so it is actually shorter for livestock uh, but with livestock there's always a confinement period, even if they're vaccinated. Okay. So whereas with companion animals, dogs and cats, if they're fully vaccinated uh, and they receive a booster vaccination within seven days of the exposure, they do not need to be confined. They are only put under observation, which is quite easy to do actually uh, by, by comparison to a confinement period. Yeah. And if you need any details on, you know, what's confinement period versus an observation period, or how long are the confinement periods and that type of thing. All that stuff is on the OMAFRA rabies yep. website. very
0: clear there. Yeah.
1: yeah, and we are, again, happy to provide recommendations for confinement periods and that type of thing, and our goal is really to keep everybody as safe as possible because, in the end, rabies is primarily a public health risk, and we are, we are the guardians of the bridge between the wildlife population where it's circulating and the human population. So okay. that's why we're trying to protect the domestic animals is really to protect the people. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much, Maureen. You're very welcome.